Hi, this is Cliff for the picture-poems.com field notes uh, report. I wanted to try something a little bit different uh, this afternoon. Um, my uh, main theme will be altitude difference and climate change. And I wanted just to go on a little bit of a walk and I'll just mention the things that I'm working on out here doing field work. It's the 18th of April. It's a beautiful bluebird Oregon blue sky day. Uh, a bit on the warm side, probably uh, as much as four to five degrees above uh, Celsius, above uh, climate average. And in round numbers, this is important because we're going to be uh, talking about altitude. Uh, I've rounded it off to 1,500 meters. We're actually slightly lower than that, but we're rounding it off. And um, so the middle of April at this altitude, I'm looking south at a beautiful open meadow that's now about 85, 90% snow free and just to give you an idea when I arrived here or oh, about 10 or 11 days ago I'm looking right at my base camp if I turn south there's my tent and all my uh, assorted gear for snow it's uh it's way too warm to be thinking about uh, skis but we could start right here on a ski tour when I first got here it was almost a hundred percent snow cover there. Of course it wasn't all that thick. Maybe on average um, 20 centimeters, 30 centimeters, but it's melting very, very rapidly. We'll be talking about that. But let's get a move on. So I'm walking over. This is already, you can hear, quite dry. Um, just in the past few days, snow feet free ground because we're at altitude don't forget lighter air colder air means less water vapor so things evaporate very quickly so now you can hear probably I'm going through a patch of snow and now we're back on dry beautiful uh, montane uh, topsoil its color aspect is almost entirely earthy brown. So it's very similar to what you see its autumn aspect. But now I'm looking, I'm just looking around. Here are a few younger ponderosas. One's quite young, 30, another one's probably 60 or 70 years old. And they, of course, create their own uh, preconditions of flourishing. So there's an island almost entirely circle, circular of grasses and forbs and whatnot. We'll be talking about that too, but let's keep walking here. So we've already picked up seven meters of altitude. We're going to be very precise. Seven meters. And here we are just seven meters above our base camp. And we're standing, let me see if I can make a sound. We're standing in a once magnificent, it's still magnificent, 
That's the sound of um, quaking aspen, the most common species of tree in North America. Well, this is our first very radical sign of climate crisis in a hotter, drier climate. That will be our main theme, hotter, drier climate. And how snow line, that's a key concept. That's why it's so important to think in terms of centigrade and Celsius. Just one degree C is the difference between rain and snow. Well, the aspen, let me see here. There they are again. This is uh, an, what you look for in aspen groves. If you don't know the tree, it's, it's probably, for many people, and sometimes myself, it's, they're listening, it's one of the most beautiful trees on the planet. And they're just starting to bud out. Of course, the aspen all come from a um, common uh, rootstock. It's a beautiful, beautiful image, isn't it? There are three generations here. That's what I like to see in an aspen grove. The entire grove is probably, um, oh, 40 meters in circumference. It's just a little island. Now, why would they be here in this one particular spot? Let's keep walking. Well, it's mostly because of uh, moisture. It has to be slightly uh, more moist here. But still, they need a lot of sunshine. And uh, they need that snow melt that has a rhythm to it that's crucial of when it melts and how quickly it melts. I'm looking through the aspen grove here, and I see large drifts of snow which are still a half a meter, a meter deep. And that, depending on the temperature, melts very slowly, and it has a marvelous diurnal daily rhythm to it. At night, it freezes solid. We're at altitude here, 1,500 meters. So that means that at night, it's going to get quite cold. So the rhythm of that melting, here we go. Now this is afternoon snow. If you have an ear and they're an alpinist, well, you can say almost everything you need to know about snow conditions just by the sound. See, that's the sound. You can tell my, I just have light mountain runners on. <clears throat> it's so warm I don't have a top on. And I'm not wearing sunglasses, although I have them, and I should. But I want to be able to see things clearly for a photograph or two. So now we're in completely different terrain. Changes quickly here in the Wallace. We're on very steep uh, basalt, volcanic rock. And we've climbed now, excuse me, 13 meters. Let's keep going a little bit here. So you can hear this is quite dry already. Now listen to this. 
You hear how it's still intermittent snow. Will we continue? Oh, listen to this. Now those are our friends, brothers and sisters, uh, mountain toads. Don't call them frogs. They're the ones that have the beautiful... Let me get over this steep pitch here. Turn the mic around again. Bufo Boreas, if I remember right. They have the white stripe down their back. And they totally disappear eight or nine months of the year. What we hear are entirely male toads. And if we keep on walking, listen to what happens. I wasn't intending on doing this, but they presented themselves. Now, obviously the toads are dug in there. I'm by no means an expert, but I very much enjoy observing them. Dug into the mud, which doesn't quite freeze under the snow surface. So our snow melts eventually. So again, it's rhythm. It's all about timing and rhythm. Listen to this. So we're back on a drift here that's about a half a meter. Here's more climate crisis right here. Here's an av avalanche uh, alder that's dead, that's having a problem adapting quick enough to a hotter, drier climate. Everything that has a leaf up here that falls off, deciduous trees, the alders, let's see if we can still hear our toads. Let's keep walking here. We're losing altitude, so we're already off our plan, damn it. So, Get down here, wait a second. We're going through some huckleberries here. So now we're in quite deep, uh, drifty snow. It froze pretty hard. I gotta be careful that I don't fall through here. We're going over a old Dugford trunk. Well, this will be a different route, but it's a good route. Anyway, so we're going down. We've lost about seven meters. Let's keep going over here. So we're still in snow. Even though it's lower, it's because it's more densely shaded here so the sun doesn't get in. And let me stop just here. It's remarkable that what a magnificent instrument we have with our own physical mind-body. That we're standing now, black-capped chickadee, that... Uh, um, we're standing now in a microclimate, and if we were to stand here a minute, we'd be putting on 
woolen socks and longer pants and sweaters. It's very much cooler. And you're sensing that entirely with the instrument uh, of your skin. Like a magnificent living drum. You're just resonating. And it's a very profound difference. Much more air moisture. So the longer the snow remains here, it will keep feeding the conifer forest, the dominant forest here. Doug firs, ponderosa pine, some lodgepole interspersed. Then the white fir, the grand fir, larches, of course. That's your basic conifer forest here in the South Wallawas. So now we're sneaking up on the biggest sex event in the Pacific Northwest here, back on snow. These are entirely males. And they're singing. And there's a rhythm to it. Now listen to what they do. Quite a bit of snow here, a good meter or so. And I'm only sinking through maybe 15 centimeters or so. So it's easy to walk on. That's only because it was very cold last night. Listen to this. See that guy over there that's still croaking? Is that what we should call it? He's not in the collective. What's he doing over there? Maybe he's just en route. Well, gee, you would think that the Pope had sent an emissary talking about the sin of unprotected sexuality here in the Wallawas. And verily, we see no evil. Here, no evil. You do not see a trace. Now, how many voices do you think was in that sound cloud? That's a good question. I don't know. There were at least 30. You could probably do acoustic analysis. And for those interested in the mathematics of swarms, you could figure out, or African drumming, you could figure out how they manage to stop the collective sound as if somebody flicked a switch and there's no leader. At least as far as we know. And you do not see a trace of them. They've all disappeared under the mud. Now, that what stopped their singing? Well, it's just our presence. The noise, first and foremost, they'll feel it as vibration. The low frequency vibration of our footsteps in the snow and on the soggy earth. Now we're going back up slope. So that was our mountain toad excursion. And they were, of course, we just walked all the way around it. A small, seasonally, full melt pool that's only with all of that sound 
that's only, what, maybe five meters in diameter. I'm looking right at it, very undeep, at its deepest 20 centimeters of water. Of course, it's nice and muddy, exactly what they want. And they just disappear under the surface, into the muck, until they know the coast is clear. And then they strike up the beat for the biggest sex event in the Pacific Northwest. Now they have relatives. So here we're at 1,500 meters. Is in round numbers. The middle, let's keep going, of April. And how do they time their chorus? of trying to attract um, interested females into the pond for procreation activities, well, that's going to be related to snowmelt. And just with the historical climate in a steady state, say, that would have a variability of anywhere at this altitude, three, four weeks. But now, of course, it's happening recurrently ever earlier. Snow is melting earlier in a very simple way because of a hotter, drier climate. We just picked up 13 meters. Listen to this. So you hear. Now, is that good snow if you're a ski alpinist? Is that good snow for tomorrow? Well, pretty good, not real good. If it were harder at this hour, I, I don't think I mentioned this, uh, let's see, 17 hours in the afternoon. And now we're, oh, good golly. We're marching up what is most likely an old Native American path going through just snow-free, totally leafless, leafless snowberries, Sempori corpus, carpus, and there's a little spring that we're paralleling, Black Sedge Spring. And now we're in total shade. That's partly time of day and partly because of the closed canopy. So just in this little trek that we've done so far, how many microhabitats have we seen? This is not a green pasture in Holland. This is a landscape with almost infinite complexity. 
it's changing as we speak. So here's a cluster of gray and fur, white fur. So here's another sound for you. We're coming up on the source of a spring. And of course, I'd never tell anybody where this is. Before you know it, you'd have the Swiss out here with Nestle, putting it in bottles. Let's see if we can hear this. Notice you wouldn't expect to find mountain toads up here. Too much shade. <clears throat> and not water pooled up. This is fairly steep ground, about a 30% incline we're going up through dense conifer forest. And now lo and behold, here's a spring. Can you hear that? You can drink right out of it. We just did. That water is at about um, a constant temperature, independent of the time of year, of six or seven degrees Celsius. And it's just bubbling out. It almost looks like a uh, home water tap. Just a thin, more than a trickle stream, but magnificently clear, pure water. No need, in my view, to filter it or to do anything. So we're keeping going, trying to connect up with our main theme again, altitude and climate. So notice that that whole habitat, I can't do it justice and keep marching up the mountain, that it's a whole microhabitat that one could spend a lifetime getting to know. I'm looking down at it now, it's about three meters below us. It's already greened up. It's about 30, 40% snow lingering yet. And that water is coming from somewhere deep down. It's surrounded by that mixed conifer, let's just keep calling it that, with trees about 30 or 40 meters, all an average age of 100 years, 200 years plus. But it's not old growth. It's been logged two or three times in here. And we just stepped over. Ah. Black-capped chickadee. I call them little Beethovens. And they sound like they're pounding on a timpani. They band up with the black-capped chickadees during the winter here, although we didn't see much of that this winter. 
So we're on the rise. Now back you can hear it dry. No snow in sight. So it's about a thousand times drier here than that little island of a hidden spring. We're not telling anybody where it is. Now we're, I should pause here, I guess. This is a little snow valley. Isn't that a beautiful pure sound? That um, will normally have deep drifts in it, lingering into almost summer. So that would be into June. And now it's the middle of April and it's totally snow free. The ground is still wonderfully moist. And that's a joy to see here because this is a conifer forest that's adapted to hot and dry to start with and totally dependent on snow melt for moisture. About 85% at least of the precipitation in this part of the Wallawa is in the form historically of snow. So let's get up this little slope here. And we're on Forest Service ground. This land is our land. This land is your land. But that's the subject of another field note. We're passing some redroot. And that's largely Cheonosus velotinus, magnificent plant. We'll do a whole field report on that one soon. It's a plant of countless uses. Very much maligned because it takes over roads. <laughs> it grows so fast. Okay, now let's see here. Here's a huge single shrub of red root. Now normally would they be affected by altitude, climate, temperature, and snow? Yes. Normally this uh, bush here, it's a very branched uh, shrubby bush, perennial or uh, what do you call it? Evergreen. Looking at it right now. And it has three distinct uh, veins on its leaf. A very shiny top and grayish green doll underneath. And the leaf is basically an ellipse and they curl, some are curled now if it gets a little bit drier. And just briefly, there are many things I'd love to say about this. It's related to all you teabaggers out there, <laughs> um, to um, a Cheonosis species, a redroot species of back east that gave us the real revolutionary tea. When the freedom fighters, the real ones, dumped darling tea in Boston Harbor, this is what they used as an 
caffeine uh, substitute. There are many more things. This also makes excellent tobacco. We'll talk about that later. So we're picking up some more altitude here. Notice it's quite dry. So we've picked up 54 meters. That's about half of what I wanted to do here. 100 meters. It's very dry. Now there's no snow in sight. Here's some willows. Catkins just coming out. Underneath we have some snowberry and their leaves are opening now quite early. And of course the red roots are evergreens. Here's lupin coming up. Here's the evergreen Oregon grape, the dwarf one. Not the one that grows on the west side. Here's some more blueberries, huckleberries. So is there already fire danger here in the middle of April? Well, no, certainly not extreme. The Forest Service would rate it as low right now, of course, because there's moisture everywhere. And we have to have a whole lot more desiccation in heat before things get ready to blow up. Here's some lupine coming out, but they're just leafing. This is only snow free, perhaps. This is a south, southwest facing exposure. We're already way above Little Dark Said Spring. We're keeping a secret. We don't want Nestle out here. Now here I just pulled out some, we're asking permission, some of Yarrow. If we were doing a field note report on healing plants, well, the Wallawas is the place to do it. It's wonderfully rich here. This is the same species of yarrow that grows in the Alps, Achillea millifolium. So it's circumpolar and one of the healers of healers. And the reason why I took a, let me just munch on it. It has, like the red root, every single plant here, to varying degrees, just like people, has its own character unique smell, sound, and what we're now experiencing, taste. Yarrow is unmistakable. Slightly bitter, the tonic of tonics, because Achillea for the great Achilles, it's the herb that was taught to him by Chiron, half mountain goat, half man, who came down from the mountains to teach human people, people about healing herbs. Beautiful image, that. So it's the antiseptic, homeostatic, septic that will stop the blood flow. If you put it, rub it into an open wound, that's part of its 
Greek uh, mythology. But it's another plant of a thousand uses, also known in China for the stems, used uh, for the great book of divination, the I Ching. It has perfectly straight uh, stems with a wonderfully white flower cluster at the top. Now, our theme is altitude and temperature climate crisis. So, in round numbers, oops, a little bit too much. Let's cheat. Say we, we've come up 64 meters. Round numbers, we have to be simple because we want to be, in a general way, crystal clear. At least as clear as possible. Now, this is very important that 100 meters of altitude is a one degree Celsius in dry air. We're in very dry air here. Just be simple. One degree Celsius temperature difference. It becomes one degree colder every 100 meters we're going up this mountain. That's a lot. So let that sink in. That's one of the many reasons why it's crucial that the world be on the same page with Celsius and centigrade. Every ecologist, every mountaineer should just have this in their boots. That's the way they are in the Alps. They live in a totally, I'm not talking about climbers, I'm talking about mountain farmers that work farms from 1,000 to 2,400 meters. So they know on the back of their hand every single meter, both in terms of area and of altitude. They just know it by heart. It's totally second nature. And of course we here in North America, even the scientists, they have no, of course they understand it intellectually. But it's another thing altogether to be able to sense it deeply in your own instrument. In here in Northeast Oregon, in this part of the Intermountain West, a long ways from the west side, Portland and Seattle and Eugene, it's a long ways away if you walk or ride a bike. Well, this is a very dry, austere climate. And what rainfall we have is almost entirely thanks to elevation difference. So elevation is the king of differences here. It's the primary difference. So when an air mass coming from the west or southwest into a relatively isolated range like the Wallawa. Altogether, it's big. It's one-sixth the size of Switzerland. Think of that. To my back, I'm looking down slope, is entirely... We're just about ready to enter the formal wilderness. Of course, the trees here don't know the difference. I mean, 
nature's trust, which has been set aside, thank the gods, as totally roadless, one-sixth the size of Switzerland. So you think this would be a lot of land to wrap your head around. Well, indeed it is. But the culture which has taken hold here is not in any regard a mountain culture. It's entirely a riparian canyon culture. This cannot be said with enough emphasis. No one lives here. This time of year, no one comes here, except on weekends, perhaps, heaven forbid, a snow machine, or two, or 10, or 20. No one lives here, no one works here, except for projects. And then in the summer, when it's totally snow-free, it's night and day. Not that that increases understanding, but there's a tradition of lowlanders, people that live like in the close-by communities where I have an office, and they're down at 700, 800 meters. That's almost a vertical kilometer. So that's 10 degrees C difference. So it almost never snows down there, relatively little. And with climate crisis, winter is basically going to be over there. There will no longer be much of any winter to speak of, with snow and cold and frozen earth and all the rest of it. Whereas here, traditionally, where I'm sitting at our 1,566 meters, is normally a good snowpack of uh, two meters, which comes on climate average, historically begins to build up in November, and then reaches its climate maximum, April the 1st, and then goes into very slow and gradual decline. So what you make, I'm drawing it now with my finger, if you can hear that, is a bell curve, a simple bell curve. The snowpack has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now where those points begin and end, that's obviously very important. And where it begins to decline is important. And that's also its maximum depth. Those are all relevant differences. All of those are being profoundly very rapidly affected by climate crisis. We're just seeing the very beginning of it. Ask the trees. Ask the aspen where we started out. 66 just say 50 meters rounded off. So that's only a half a degree C difference. But it's still impressive, isn't it? Just that little bit of walking is nothing. That's a half a degree Celsius. And again, for those scientists listening, in my view, we should not try to be too precise. 
because that will confuse us. What we need more of is simply walking the land and getting a long-term in, in individual life sense of what's actually here, what's actually taking place. And I see very, very little of that. I see lots of studies, but I never see anyone out here other than, you know, harvesting resources. There's a lot of that. I don't want to talk about that on this uh, Field Notes report. It's mostly timber harvest, of course, marginal, but uh, historically uh, devastating and major. Two or three times have already run through here, taking out all the old growth. In just 200 years' time, with the first contact of white, white people, with Lewis and Clark coming through. If we could go back in time and see how things have changed, not because of climate, just because of human activity, in just 200 years' time, it would be absolutely breathtaking. There's a flicker. Is he calling to us? Notice the resonance of the sound. That's a real concert hall. That's all these old growth, a lot of dug fur now. The higher we go, you see, the forest will modulate. That's what we're talking about. So we're in the prime zone now at this altitude of Ponderosa Pine. And another just 400, 450 meters. We're not going to do that today. But uh, they, uh, what I call, click out. Not because uh, too, too hot, too dry, it gets too cold. They, they're the most drought-tolerant tree out here. So if the ponderosas are having trouble, we're in trouble. So there's our yarrow. I'm still sitting next to it. I just wanted to say that all of these marvelous herbs here, there are very few weeds that are yet noticeable. They'll be coming up later. This area is grazed, so wherever there's grazing, there's a plague of weeds. But just mention a few. There's some a spring beauty. We'll be doing another report on uh, flower power salad mix. They're all edibles. Here's the lupine coming up. That's not edible. Here's the yarrow, edible but a little bit bitter. There's um, yellow bells. Um, there and there's the marvelous avalanche lily. Highly edible. And the spring beauties in the purslane. The, all of those plants I just mentioned they have tubers or bulbs, they're all perennials. So once you get to know them, you know them forever. You can teach a child, however young, where these plants are, and they can come back and teach their children and their grandchildren the plants. So these glacier lilies right here, just about, just about finished. So they've been out for three weeks. Here's a Claytonia, a spring beauty, very beautifully named, magnificent plant, highly edible. It's also called Indian potato. But you kill the plant if you dig out the little nutlet. So that's more for when you're seriously 
in need of food. We're picking up some serious meters here. This is about a 35% incline, very dry. No snow in sight. Big dug furs. Let's get some meters here. Here's the other species of snowberry, the taller one. Now we're on a ridge, so we can see all of a sudden, magnificent. To the east, and here how dry it is. Don't forget this is the middle of April. What's it gonna sound like the middle of July? Here's an old duck fur. Magnificent to see this. Snag. There's one still standing. It's probably a 300 year old tree. It's blown off at the top. There's only three meters left standing. Used by a whole community of organisms. And here's one laying on the ground. You can hear I'm picking up what's left of its inner cellulose and it's just very slowly folding back into the earth the montane topsoil it builds very very slowly it's a gift of the gods have been building since the last glaciation and retreated of the glaciers here's a whole field of claytonias you could make an entire salad bowl and they're very fresh they come directly after snowmelt. That's why they're called, it's a beautiful name, spring ephemerals. Well, let's see, we're almost at our 100 meter mark. Don't forget, this Swiss altimeter instrument that's working not on GPS, but uh, air pressure is so sensitive that you take a couple steps up a stairway and it'll show you the difference. That's the weight of our atmosphere pushing down on us. So the higher we go, the lighter the air gets. Beautiful ponderosa, probably two or three hundred years old since it opens up. So now we're in a different habitat, fewer trees. And why is that? It's not because the trees have been cut down, it's because the snow has historically lingered too long in the growing season. That together with rocky soil. All of that is changing as we speak. Almost there. There's, I'm just looking over here. There's some dug fur. 
with a serious infestation of dwarf mistletoe. I don't want to go into that now, but for those looking for research projects, the relationship between mistletoe and altitude and how that's changing is analogous to mistletoe in latitude. And it certainly needs to be studied. Almost all the dug fur, oh, probably about 50% of the ponderosa, many of the larch are affected by uh, dwarf mistletoe. So we're almost there. We're just doing it this in random. I didn't have a spot picked out. We're just, this is how I normally work. Normally I'd be running this ridge. And you can go very quickly. I didn't bring a tripod, just two cameras. And both held, handheld. So normally I just keep walking and then say, oh, this is interesting. And stop and study it. The macro lens and then start making, oh, here we have some Mertensiana. Some bluebells, also edible member of the borage family everything the the it looks very similar in color to the garden borage perhaps you're used to putting the flowers in your salads it's an unmistakably beautiful signature blue color so we just went through a micro grove of those think of that they'll be gone in another two weeks time so that's the ephemeral thing. It's just a sudden bursting into flame and then it's gone. What could be more beautiful than that? And if you want to follow them, then you just keep on going high. You start at this altitude. Say you were here camped. You had the time. Next week you go up 50, 100 meters higher and you have the same plants just beginning to flower so you can see the whole thing repeatedly. With many of these spring ephemerals, every single one that I mentioned all the way up into think of this winter or summer solstice, including our friends, the mountain toads. If we were to keep climbing, if we had more time, now we're getting back into snow. Well, that 1500 meter mountain toad colony has <clears throat> relatives up at 2400 meters so nearly a vertical kilometer higher well their big sex festival doesn't start until climate average the beginning of july think of that that's how much later the same species, evidently. I mean, there might be variations that we don't see. We're almost at our 100 mark. Yep. It's a cluster of dying white fur. I don't know quite what's doing that. Get over here. Okay, 100 meters in round numbers. 
and we're back into snow. That's a good place for me. You can hear the difference in the temperature. My feet are not going quite as far into the snow. And of course, this is just a big blotch drift. It hasn't really snowed here for weeks. A lingering snowpack. And it's melting in the periphery all the way around. Okay, so now it's time to sum up. But that's amazing, isn't it? That was just one degree Celsius. Now, why did I pick 100 meters, one degree Celsius? Well, as we all know, or should know, that the world has decided that two degrees warming C is acceptable. And we've already put, in my view, so much carbon into the air that we almost, if, even if we were to go carbon neutral today, we can count on at least four or five degrees Celsius. So, but that's an average, of course, and it's probably for where we're at here, not, with emphasis, not the appropriate way of thinking. So who are we going to go to to find out about the Wagawas? That's a good question. The people who would have known are all gone. And have been gone for decades. And so, in a way, it's a tremendously exciting opportunity to really figure this stuff out. That's a challenge. One degree C, just like in the Arctic, many researchers say there's already four degrees C plus of warming going on there. And as you go up in latitude and go up in altitude, it's very analogous. And what are the factors that are doing this? It's not just the colder, thinner air, but it's, I'm looking right at it. I don't have my glacier goggles on right now, but I should, let me put them on. That uh, I'm looking right at it. It's the snow reflectivity, that's much better. It's blinding at this altitude, and we're just at 1,500 meters. So this is old snow, so it has uh, needles and dust and whatnot on it. But when snow is fresh, it is highly reflective. All the incoming energy, everybody should know this, that is sent right back out to outer space is reflected. It's like painting. The Dutch used to paint their greenhouses with a white matte paint to reflect the incoming UV and reflect it out into space. Well, they know that if they don't have that, instead of reflecting it, they're going to be absorbing it. So the effect of carbon is no different than a car that you forgot to roll down the windows in the middle of summer, and you come back and it's stifling on the inside. Instead of reflecting the heat, you're going to be trapping it. And so I'm looking at this edge around, it's highly complex. 
in Mandelbrot fractal terms, is infinitely complex border between snow surface and dark dirt. And it's melting. So you see the contrast, this primary difference of reflectivity was called albedo, albus, white. That's a good one to remember. That in the absorption of this almost very deep earthy brown soil that's absorbing almost all of the incoming. And the more that you have, this is where I'm sit, sit, sitting right now is flat, but on a steep slope, it's like a solar panel. You know, you get to the maximum absorption inclination. So southern slopes are particularly vulnerable. East-facing slopes, particularly vulnerable. West-facing slopes. The north-facing slopes, they're in constant shade are less. But this reflectivity is the primary factor of why mountains are analogous to the North and South Poles. In addition, the temperature increases now from climate average. Well, it is certainly, in my view, more than one degree C. And that's what we haven't been talking enough about, is the snow line, the altitude of the temperature changing from plus one degree C to zero, where it's, the rain turns into snow. That should be in every weather report in meters, that we have to get used to wanting to hear that the first thing in the news. What's the snow line at? That's the primary thing that we want to keep track of is alpinists and skiers and um, for safe movement in the winter mountains. Is that snow, where is it at? And then to get an idea of how it's changing because it's rising and is rising very rapidly. Just as <clears throat> uh, the sea levels are rising much faster than models predict, and ice is melting in the Arctic and the Antarctic and in Greenland much faster than any of the climate models that I'm aware of predict. Well, the snow line is also increasing very, that means going up in altitude, very much faster than, well, not so much models because there are not that many models of it. But uh, uh, the predictions would leave you infer from a simple one. We just went up a one degree Celsius temperature difference, just that little bit. So that's why I call it 100 meters, one degree of climate. But actually, What's happened here is probably in round numbers, and of course this is just the mere theoretically uh, somewhat informed guess, is two or three at least. And the higher increase of uh, average 
air temperature. And that factor would increase the higher one goes. And that has to do with, uh, now let's bring our field notes to a report uh, conclusion here. Well, so we have snow line and this is the way to say it. Here they talk, because it's very important for irrigation further down in the canyon country where they're growing uh, large amounts of alfalfa and triticale and such things for livestock. It's totally dependent on almost 100% on irrigation and therefore 100% dependent on snowpack. So this current winter has in some respects been a good winter so generally people go back to sleep. We're still, in my view, in a drought. Whether that will persist, we'll see. And I don't want to go into that right now. But they're saying, for example, 120% of climate average, that's only measured from 1977, um, snowpack. Well, I think those numbers are way off the chart and distortive. It would take too much detail to really go into it why I think that but let me give you here's a way of saying it it's Cliff's big ice cube theory of snowpack that we all know what it's like to drop an ice cube into a cola or a whiskey and you see that if you have a bigger ice cube it melts more slowly than the small one so uh, that's related to the inverse cube of volume rule and surface area. There are many factors that I don't think are clear when we're trying to dis uh, determine how quickly snow melts. Well, I'm looking at this little patch of snow here. Now, if we were to cut that in half, it would be gone tomorrow. So simply divide it in half. Uh, take a avalanche snow shovel and dig a, a meter-wide swath across this patch I'm looking at. It's probably 15 meters across. Well, the, as it is now, it'll probably last another five days. But if you cut it in half, it'll probably melt within a day or two. And that's because the surface area relative to the perimeter has changed. If the snow level goes up, you're getting what I call a top-heavy snowpack. So they're getting the 120% number just from a measuring station. They're not looking at the hole by any means whatsoever. Just one data point, think of that, for an area one-sixth the size of Switzerland. It's crazy. But I'll give you a little anecdote. Almost exactly two years ago, it was May the 19th, 2014, I was just at the foot of a camp and I was on snowshoes without a sled, so I remember it vividly. It was hard to get all the gear up and without skis, unfortunately, but you can't do everything. Very close to where the recent avalanche, I could look right out at it, avalanche tragedy 
happened two years ago. I made a snow profile, not a pit, but a profile. One reads it like a book. So there's a complete, like a Twitter stream, going backwards in time. It's one direction going back in time. So you dig down and down and down. And it was right next to where I had my little tent set up. And I kept digging down. I said, holy moly, this is the 19th of uh, May. And I got down to, I looked up and said, I'm going to be able to get, uh, am I going to be able to get out of this hole? It was three and a half meters deep. That's the 19th of May. Now that's a good touch of snow. That was at 2,300 meters. I couldn't really put my snowshoes on until 2,000 meters. A little bit below that, 1,900. That's 400 meters. And below that was very much like it was, is right here, open. Now, I was back there around the 19th of June, right before summer solstice, and it was totally desiccated. Not only was that three and a half meters of snow gone, but it had totally dried out. It was absolutely breathtaking. I've never seen snow vanish so quickly, right before one's eyes. And then the general rule of snow melting from underneath it no longer holds. When it's so hot like that, you actually see it sublimating, turning into air vapor right in front of your eyes on the surface. Despite all of the reflectivity, it's breathtaking. Now that bandwidth of snow below that three and a half meters at 2,300 meters, all of this meter stuff with just a week's work becomes second nature. So just do it. I think it's an ethical imperative. There was only that small bandwidth, whereas the climate average would have said there should have been 800 meters below. Do you see what I'm trying to say? It's hard to do it uh, without graphs. I'm doing my best. So instead of 400 of a big bandwidth, there's 800, there was only 400. So that means it's top-heavy, and that means it's a small ice cube. Even though if you're measuring it right there, you'll say, gee, we have 150% of snowpack. Well, that's just nuts. That's not true. And anybody who skis or walks the land will just see that instantly. If you're sitting and just reading the satellite data, well, okay, but it's not true. Well, this increase of temperature is a big deal. Ask the trees. Because one that's the tragedy of the concept, global warming. One degree Celsius for a ponderosa pine can be life and death. For a dug fir, life and death. For those mountain toads, life and death. We don't know about the mountain chickadee. There's a whole invasion up here. Somebody do a monograph on it. Of robins. They're here year-round. This winter slightly less, but they're here year-round. Right down where we started at 100 meters below this, there's a magnificent ecotone that's totally dominated by Turtus migratoris, the little shit that migrates 
well, no longer bothers to migrate. They're just opportunists taking advantage of a hotter, drier climate. And pity all the other song thrushes because they'll just chase them right out. I saw a robin take over the branch of just the downy woodpecker. I've never seen anything like it. They're extremely aggressive, assertive birds. They're not the ones that I grew up with back east, the, the first signs of spring and all the lovely, charming Emily Dickinson poems notwithstanding. So if it's true, which I think it is, we have two, three degrees C and we're just starting. And the last thing, there are too many new concepts I know, but um, is a runaway, what's formally called a forcing, a positive forcing, very unfortunate language. It's mathematically crystal clear. It's when the screaming, ear-piercing sound of a microphone, we all know that, when it starts to feed back and pick up its own sound and goes into a wild runaway. It's when your output becomes the new input. And then we have an exponential rise of effect. I refuse to use that name hockey stick. But it has this shape of a steep crescendo, or in music, a chalorando of an chalorando until eventually you get a straight vertical line. Well, we're just at the very beginning of that. And I'm sitting in a positive forcing, a positive feedback loop, that this early snow melt was very most likely caused by increased carbon in the atmosphere, now above 400 parts per million. Just think of your closed windows on your car in August. That's what the CO2 is doing. But at a certain point, that forcing, that positive feedback, that microphone screaming into its own sound, takes on a life of its own. And that's what's happening right here. This warmth that I feel on my skin, and it's time to get headed down the mountain. We only have about an hour of direct sunlight left. We're absorbing more energy because of the lack of snow reflectivity. That leads to hotter microclimates, the ones we've been walking through, which leads to more snow melt, which leads to more absorption. And then the final note here is, well, this is wildfire country. So a hotter, drier climate does not bode well for wildfires that also go into runaway, exhibiting fire behaviors that humans, uh, at least scientifically, have never witnessed before. So we'll see what the future holds. I can tell you here this little story we've done for our field notes report. Well, this is the culture of hydrocarbon man here, where I sit. 
we were to go down into any of the little towns. No one has told them to buy the, uh, the line of the fossil fuel companies. I mean, that's a kind of denial which is totally ethically despicable and disingenuous because you know your line. Here, culture is beyond ignorance but uh, does not see any relationship between lack of water or drought or wildfire with worldview, way of living, or use of fossil fuels. Almost none whatsoever. Not only do they not see that, but they will resist you with great force to the point of threats and violence if you say, well, look, this whole thing is the cause of what's going on, of horrendous wildfires, loss of personal property and whatnot. What the uh, hydrocarbon man is calling for is more logging, more of the same old, same old, the same mistakes of the past. It's not a question of communication. It's much deeper than that. My own feeling, and I'll end with that, that's a promise, the root of climate crisis isn't carbon. It's the destructive nature of thought itself. I wrongly divide myself from the world. Everything other I either ignore or fear or seek to control or destroy. Our war against nature, against ourselves, only ends with a revolution of thought and consciousness. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. This is Cliff, signing off for another picture-poems.com field notes report. I'll add some photos to this so you can see where we were walking. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Get out here. Learn to recognize. Enjoy the great spring ephemerals. Ciao for now.